Hello, and this is episode two of the Social Theory Podcast with me, Chris Till. So, uh, welcome back if you were with us for the first episode on Karl Marx, and uh, hello if um, if you're new to the podcast. Um, in this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Lisa Long um, about the sociologist and um, civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois, um, and it was really great to talk to Lisa and to hear her kind of thoughts on some of Du Bois's work um, as she's um, very well informed on this but also because she is coming from a slightly different angle to me as she's a criminologist and also she's been an activist in this area um, herself as well and uh, and continues to be and she'll talk a little bit about that uh, in the episode. So for more on the podcast you can follow me on Twitter at Chris H. Till and you can find my blog at thisisnotasociology.blog and I'll see you at the end um, of, the, of the episode to recap. Hi again. So uh, today I'm talking to Dr. Lisa Long, who is a senior lecturer in criminology at Leeds Beckett University, uh, along with me. So hi, Lisa. Hi, Chris. Hi, and thanks for uh, coming to talk to me uh, today. Um, we're, uh, in, this, in this podcast, we're talking about uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, who is a really important um, thinker in, uh, in the history of sociology, very important today and been very important um, throughout uh, the 20th century. And um, uh, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's a lot we, we can take from him um, in order to understand what sociology is all about, but also to understand where we are today, particularly in relation to kind of to race and racism and, and related issues, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, well, I'd like to start with, I think, just very briefly to see um, what you think, uh, Lisa, about why why it's important to, to look at, to think about and to read uh, Du Bois today. Mm-hmm. OK, so for me, I think his work is really relevant, um, particularly in the current context and particularly in the 2020 context where the Black Lives Matter agenda has really kind of gone global. I mean, it's not new, but it has gone global and there's, there's a real aware, awareness of it in much more kind of general terms than I think there has been previously. Um, and so I think I think that's really important in, in this current moment because as, as, as a scholar, I also consider myself um, an activist and I did start from um, an activist position long before I was working in an academic context particularly around um, racism and deaths in police custody. And it's from that that my own research interests come about. So I think one of the things that's often quite misunderstood uh, when you're writing about a problem or thinking about a problem is that we tend to think that actually activism and scholarship are two different things. And I think for me, one of the uh, interesting things about uh, Du Bois's work, even all that time ago, is that he showed us very clearly that activism and scholarship are not too binary things that they, they do um, work together in lots of different ways and that actually through our scholarship we should be using it to push for change in those areas um, where there are inequalities and I think that's as important to our kind of research on racism and in my case criminal justice as it is towards um, our interest in creating an anti-racist university and a fair and inclusive uh, university for students from all backgrounds as well so we I think I think for me it is that link between the scholarship and activism that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that which he was engaged in throughout his life, certainly from from sort of his 
the start of his university education onwards uh, and he lived a very long life as well um and yeah he that's um i'd, I'd absolutely kind of echo that and uh, obviously i come from a slightly very close but like slightly uh, different perspective to you as, as a sociologist and um um just thinking about uh, the influence he's had on sociology uh, and also the, but also the way his work has been um has been sidelined um mm-hmm. i think uh, despite being a, actually a, you know a very famous person and um um outside of um, sociology and outside of academia um even he's often not included in in a, in a lot of kind of sociological teaching and i and really the only reasons for that can be related i think to to kind of prejudice and, and to racism and you know, we can say the same thing about a lot of other black scholars and female scholars particularly in the you know from the the early stages of the discipline um so i think that you know it's and he his work actually kind of reflects on that to be honest um mm-hmm. particularly in, in terms of what you were saying i think about uh, about the activism but also about um having an inclusive university inclusive higher education in, inclusive kind of scholarship mm-hmm. um and that it's really important to represent um those kinds of black scholars who have been significant and just black figures uh, as well mm-hmm. who uh, important and influential um and i mean he he his work was just so um it was very innovative and we'll talk about this a bit a bit later in terms of his use of different kinds of methods his the broadness of his uh, uh, analysis um and for me he's one of if maybe not the best kind of writers mm-hmm. literally in terms of his literary style in terms of um the, you know so the sociological scholarship it's just incredible and i think i'm sure you'd agree that like, anyone who's not read his work um really urged to do so and we'll talk about various of his texts uh, later just so so beautifully written and that Absolutely. really does make and make a difference because one of the things he's doing as well as working with statistics and this you know deep historical analysis is trying to engage emotionally i think mm-hmm. and subjectively um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and I think yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of touch on all of those things. But um, yeah, he's he's just a kind of an all around kind of incredible, incredible figure for me, I think. Mm-hmm. And again, that subjectivity that you mentioned there is something that we're often told should be outside of our kept outside of our research. And actually, yeah. it, it, it's really not achievable, particularly if you're interested in people's experiences and um, perceptions of the world. You know, you need you, you, you take some subjectivity into it because you are part of the research process. And I think um, historically, we're always told that that's something that we should be, be mindful of, even though there's all this fantastic work from uh, that predates those ideas really about objectivity and uh, particularly in the social sciences, you know, so, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so what we'll do is we'll just uh, do a very brief kind of uh, look at his uh, biography before getting into his work. And um, so he was, um, as I said, you know, he lived a very long life. So he was kind of, um, he was, his lifespan, is, uh, his kind of early lifespan is kind of consistent with a lot of the kind of the earliest sociologists. But then he has this strange situation. He seems to come into very much the modern day in the way that a lot of the, the oldest sociologists don't. So he was born in 1869, but didn't die till 1963, I think. Um, sorry, 1868 to 1963. Um, and he was born in Massachusetts um, uh, in the United States of America. And um, I think he, he lived in a relatively, at least he grew up in a relatively integrated community for the time. 
mm-hmm. um, and a relatively sort of um, relatively well off family. Um, and he uh, went on to study at uh, Harvard University, I think the University of Berlin um, as well. Um, and uh, he became, I think, the first um, first black American to get a PhD from uh, from Harvard. Uh, and then he went on to teach at various universities, Wilberforce University, Atlanta University. Um, and he worked as a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, which is where he conducted some research for one of his most uh, important works, um, uh, uh, the uh, Philadelphia Negro. Um, and uh, again, we'll talk about that later. Um, but as uh, Lisa mentioned earlier, he was uh, involved in uh, political activism um, throughout most of his life, and he uh, was central in the uh, Pan-African conferences, which were really, um, really important, um, bringing together uh, people from uh, around the world interested in and uh, engaged in trying to fight for kind of uh, emancipation uh, for black people um, around the world. And um, he was, a found, I think, a founding member of the NAACP, the National Association mm-hmm. for the Advancement of Coloured People, which, again, is still a very, uh, very important um, organisation, particularly in, in the United States. Uh, again, fighting for kind of civil rights. Um, and he did things such as running their monthly magazine, Crisis. Uh, later in his life, he became much more aligned with socialism um, uh, and to some extent communism and uh, a bit more influenced by Marxist theory. Uh, and was repeatedly investigated by the US government, particularly in the McCarthy era in the 50s, because of his socialist kind of uh, socialist sympathies. Um, and he would he would die in Ghana, uh, where he was I think he was invited by the the president of Ghana to to work on a, a an Encyclopedia Africana, which I don't know if that ever came to fruition, but he was kind of overseeing that. Um, uh, and he was kind of being a bit persecuted, I think, at home in America as well at the time. But he died uh, and, and was buried and, and honoured um, uh, there as well. Um, so that's a bit about his kind of his uh, the span of his life. But um, if you look into any of the, there's there's various biographies, and he wrote I think three three autobiographies, um, although not in the kind of a traditional sense of an autobiography. But um, there's there's lots to there's lots more uh, interesting things about um, about his life um, uh, to look into. But um, one of um, one of the early really important works um, was a book called The Souls of Black Folk, and I think that this is probably the book which really solidified his sort of solidified his position as a public intellectual mm-hmm. um, and as someone who was really um, important in the development of uh, kind of uh, of black activism, and it was a really big intervention. Um, so, what are your kind of thoughts on on that book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've been looking at that uh, text actually this week uh, again, just yeah. revisiting it a little bit and having having a look at, at um, so, some of the ideas again. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is probably the one that people come across most often because it's it's the it's the one that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the colour line, and that's perhaps one of his uh, most frequently cited. Um, lines or conclusions from his work really so in the souls of black folk for, for me what he's what i think he's trying to do is get an understanding of how it feels to be seen as the problem um so so kind of uh, to be seen as a problem in the context 
that he was writing, which was um, or at that time, it was only a couple of decades after the abolition of slavery in the US. You've got kind of the the uh, the system of segregation and the way that that operates in society. You've also got the differences in kind of different um, states as well and how that works in the particular area that he's located. Um, and that's what he's looking at, really. Um, but I think in in the souls of black folk, um, what you can see here is kind of really the, the beginnings of the thinking around a lot of the critical whiteness studies that are becoming really popular at the moment. Um, because what what um, what Du Bois is doing in some of his key ideas in that is thinking about the idea in particular of double consciousness. Um, and what 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 we see this um, in, in contemporary work to, to kind of um, to be to be reflected in contemporary work is around the critical whiteness uh, studies and thinking about the way that black bodies are produced and constructed through the white gaze. So through the kind of um, perceptions that white people have of the black body. And that is, so, so a lot of recent scholars are thinking about that, uh, in particular, people like George Yancey in the US, uh, Charles Mills. So um, for me, I see a lot of these very early ideas reflected in some of the more recent work as well, um, which I think is quite interesting. But in um, The Souls of Black Folk, the way that Du uh, Bois talks about um, his idea of double consciousness is he says that it's a sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others and measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body. Um, so there he's talking about having to have an American consciousness and a black consciousness. And actually, the two cannot be reconciled. And that is also quite helpful for thinking about some of the more recent narratives around, um, well, not even recent, particularly post-war in the UK context, really, and thinking about the way that ideas around Britishness are constructed in relation to whiteness very much. Um, and even kind of in the, some of the more recent um, immigration scandals that we've seen, um, particularly the Windrush uh, scandal, where people who were actually um, have lived in, in the UK for 50 years or more, who came with the parents in the post-war period um, and have never um, kind of travelled outside of the country, were then sent back or were threatened with being returned to countries they hadn't visited since they were very small children, if at all. So um, we see that, we still see that sense of um, whiteness has been uh, the nation kind of been defined by whiteness I think and I think that's another way that um, Du Bois's work uh, on on double consciousness can be helpful for us uh, when we're thinking about these problems today. Yeah absolutely absolutely it, it, it's, it's a really fascinating kind of concept and I think it, I, mean, I think he, he doesn't originate the concept of double consciousness as such but he really gives it this kind of this strength of analysis through looking at it through a kind of a race uh, lens. And um, and again, that, that quote that you read out, which is fantastic, again, it shows some of that brilliant kind of prose of his uh, kind of genius kind of prose. And it's it's this sense of always being seen as a problem and, and almost having to see yourself as a problem, mm -hmm. which yeah, kind of really 
really struck home with me. And um, again, of, of having these two elements within you that can't be reconciled and, and whiteness, uh, which is what you're getting up with the critical whiteness stuff, stuff is that, that whiteness is seen as the default. And he yeah. does a lot of work of trying uh, throughout that book and, and lots of his other work as well, um, sort of trying to deconstruct how um, uh, blackness is seen as negative in various contexts, whether that's literally in terms of certain kinds of certain black people, but also just the concept of blackness. And he does a lot of work trying to kind of um, change that perception uh, and um, to kind of uh, reappropriate some of that those kinds of ideas. And, mm -hmm. and crucial to this is, is the, the concept um, which I find really useful is of the veil, which comes back to which is very much kind of described in what you just said as well, that um, actually both black and white people are, are always kind of seeing through a veil. Uh, there's this, that's almost like where the veil is where the colour line is, I suppose, in a sense. Um, and that's kind of obstructive on both sides. Um, and But to be able to get a kind of a full or, or a better picture, you've got to see from the other side, the side of, of, of black people, in order to see what really what's going on. And that gets us to that kind of position, which, again, we see a lot later in a lot of work um, of um, having to having to, it being necessary to, to, to take the position to look at the understanding, look through the eyes of the oppressed person um, uh, or, or the, the, the marginalised person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also kind of represents a barrier between a white world that you can see but can't access because of because of blackness so you so kind of the veil is it allows you to see but excludes you from that world that, that you don't have access to and that world equals opportunities and um, uh, access to, to, to economic security education etc doesn't it so yeah yeah um Absolutely. And um, we may talk about this later, but he, he, he kind of writes a, um, almost a kind of a riposte to his own work later on in The Souls of White Folk, um, which later, which is actually even more kind of critical and radical uh, uh, as well, and which is a, an even more explicit kind of, I suppose, engagement with that, what would later be talked about as critical whiteness studies. Um, but what you're just saying there as well um, about the kind of the opportunities and the restrictions that are on that you know that 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 veil kind of um, puts in puts in between you uh, the, the the sort of the black person and the, and the white world or, or the the world of opportunity um, kind of I think that kind of really comes through in in that um, book which I mentioned earlier the Philadelphia Negro which was the result of his um, uh, that kind of postdoctoral I think work um, that he did at the University of Pennsylvania um, and this was a really incredible piece of work um, for it's, it's, it being innovative in, 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 in so many different ways. Um, but it was, I suppose, in short, it's, it's an analysis of, sort of black communities um, or a particular black community, really, uh, in Philadelphia uh, in the late 19th century. Um, and he was kind of asked to do this um, and then he kind of went away and did it and, and, and really kind of um, in a lot of ways, revolutionised kind of uh, social science work. It's among the first kind of, among the earliest kind of quantitative um, statistical analysis done of, uh, of this kind. But it's also a kind of a, a combination of all sorts of methods as well. And perhaps most significantly, though, it's really pretty much the first sort of social science representation of a black community. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, of any kind. Um, and it's again, it's 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 doing exactly what he kind of outlines in, in those other things we're talking about. We have to see from the perspective of uh, of this group, um, but also uh, and see how their kind of life opportunities are, are kind of structured by the by the situation that they're in, but also see that they're. Um, uh, there's diversity within that community as well. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. um, I wonder what you take what you take from that. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, from what you're saying in terms of um, the method, it is absolutely way ahead of the discipline at its time, isn't it? Um, yeah. He's developing these really sociological explanations for things at a time when, I mean, for me as as a kind of uh, criminologist, the biological criminology at that time was really at its height so you've got kind of the reliance on these ideas of um born criminality particularly um in the work of lombroso who's kind of seen as the founding father of criminology as a discipline really so these ideas that were very heavily racialized around which physical characteristics um could be used to identify who is a criminal uh, and who is not they were, they were kind of both racialized and gendered very heavily in terms of ideas um, and, and that was kind of um, also informing the eugenics movement that came a little bit later as well so thinking about um, the fact that that if you kind of stop reproduction from criminogenic people, then you can kind of design out design crime out of society. So don't allow people who are alcoholics or drug addicts or whatever or, or known criminals to have children or from groups of people. Um, who are known to have criminogenic traits. So um, we've got this kind of really dangerous idea at the time, re really um, characterising criminology around bio biology and being born criminal. And here we've got Du Bois telling us that actually, no, it's, this, it's society, it's the social problems that cause criminology, it is, it, that cause crime, sorry. And actually it is racism in some cases that causes crime. It's the lack of opportunities, it's the lack of um, equality that causes people. Um, and as well as that, people's living space and social environment and all of these factors. So I find that really interesting um, about his work. But it's also interesting that white scholars kind of 30 or 40 years after Du Bois is writing about this, were really credited with developing these explanations within criminology. So particularly like the Chicago School of Criminology criminology, sorry, who were kind of really credited with social disorganisation theory and thinking about the way that the social environment shapes people's behaviour in terms of crime. Actually, they've took a lot of credit for that. And if you read any criminological textbook now, I can't think of uh, any where Du Bois's work is cited as, as kind of bringing these ideas to the fore about the causes of crime and actually the solutions in some, in some of his writing as well to the problem. This is it. And I think there's not, you know, there's, I mean, this ties into things which I know you're kind of very involved in as well around um, the notions around decolonizing the curriculum, um, which have become very, of course, very, mm -hmm. um, very prominent in recent years. And, you know, I, I feel that there is just less and less um, justification um, to not kind of take that on board. And especially if you kind of look back through the, some of the kind of intellectual history of this, it's like those people, um, who were doing that work, they did know his work, mm, whether or not they actually cited it. And of course, you know, the, and the, the, the people who kind of really, um, I think, I'm not sure so much about in criminology, but certainly in sociology, it seems like the, the, the canon of the discipline 
was kind of solidified in sort of the 1950s, 60s kind mm. of time uh, when um, certain people like Talcott Parsons were kind of um, doing this kind of work and also when a lot of the the, the sociology departments were um, uh, were kind of um, uh, were established um, uh, certainly in this country and it was just kind of written out really and, and there's, mm. there's no real excuse for it um, I think but yeah that, that work is absolutely is absolutely fascinating and he does such um, it's, you know, it's, I suppose it's what we would now call mixed methods or something like that, but mm-hmm. it's sort of a combination of um, qualitative interviews, ethnography, primary and secondary statistical analysis, um, probably some things I've, I've missed out as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and even actually in, in really innovative in terms of, again, what we now call data visualisation. Mm-hmm. It has these yeah, really, drawing really, list, yeah, yeah. really great representations of, uh, of the statistical analysis, which are really useful and really easy to read, you know, for that reason, because mm. it's been so well done. Um, but of course, do highlight these things, even just make things really stark, like, like you mentioned, in terms of opportunities around, um, you know, the, the, the just the jobs that black people have and, and the breakdown between black men and women. And it's just compared to the population as a whole, it's just overwhelmingly in certain professions, particularly around, particularly in terms of women around kind of, um, a kind of domestic work and that kind of thing and and uh, everything in, in the kind of generally in the lower paid end mm-hmm. but this th- this point is really important and it's what you it brings back to the, the point you were making about that kind of the challenging of that that criminological um uh, biological criminological perspective uh, is in this notion of uh, is a, of black heterogeneity mm-hmm. and that there is a heter- and that there is a heterogeneous uh, a diverse array of different kind of groups communities classes Types of people, everything within the black community, even within not just within a country or a city, but even within a section of a city. It's the mm-hmm. seventh ward that, that he focuses on. Um, there's a whole array of different people in there, and that, in a sense, we could look back and that seemed obvious. Of course, there's different kinds of people, but it certainly wasn't at the time. Uh, you know, black people were just seen as a homogenous group who were mm-hmm. essentially kind of all the same. Um, and this work sort of empirically showing that is so important, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because I think while the rest of the world was still convinced um, by the idea of racial superiority and inferiority, Du Bois in his work was very much challenging that idea, wasn't he? That actually there are fixed characteristics about blackness that mean this kind of behaviour, etc. And through that, through the idea of heterogeneity, you're showing that actually it's it's not a so it's not a biologically fixed set of behaviours or or moral frameworks or ideas or crim, criminogenic uh, nature. It, it, it kind of really kind of starts to challenge that idea, doesn't it, of racial inferiority uh, and superiority that was very much part of both disciplines at the time and society more broadly and in some in some cases still is today um but it really starts to 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 unpick that idea um and i think i that that kind of thinking is also probably one of the reasons why his work was marginalized because even though he was recognized as a very intellectual man he was still seen in terms of this uh, societal hierarchy. This hierarchy has been, you might be saying some interesting things, but actually in the grand scheme of things, he's not a scholar, he's a black scholar. 
So therefore his work is not as important in, in this kind of system of how we understand who intellectuals are and which type of people have the capacity to be intellectual versus those who, who don't. And I think that that's one of the reasons why he was never offered a kind of a, a full kind of profession, proper full professorship at Harvard or University of Pennsylvania. And he did, um, you know, he, he taught for most of his life at the University of Atlanta, which is a good university. But it was, I think it was it was seen as sort of a black university, black mm. um, at, uh, certainly at the time. And um, it seems kind of um crazy that they would you know that that's the, that would be the situation given his prominence even at the time you know mm-hmm. but again I think again that's that's that color line and, and that's that kind of veil uh, even someone of his his kind of success and prominence was was still subject to that mm. and I think even we can see again the contemporary continuities especially when we're looking at as you were saying about the decolonizing the curriculum uh, and some of that again is about including contemporary black scholars whose work is still marginalized and who don't get um uh, seats in, in elite universities and and have a voice in the discipline because because their work is marginalized as black scholarship and i think um yeah. we can still see that today can't we Absolutely. And that brings us on to a kind of a really, uh, a really important concept of his as well. This um, uh, th- this notion that he has of the he calls the talented 10th, which um, in my understanding is it's this this idea that um, for any kind of group, um, obviously specifically interested in, in, in black people, uh, we need we need to develop the um, the the talented 10 percent, basically the top 10 percent of the most talented, most kind of uh, intellectual and kind of forward thinking um, people in order to develop the uh, the group as a whole. Mm-hmm. And um, this is kind of in in direct kind of um, well, and uh, one of the bit, the main roots to that is, is what we've just been talking about, really, the importance of including those um, those people in kind of elite positions, whether that's in terms of universities or political positions mm-hmm. or so uh, prominent places in culture, I suppose, and politics, yeah. society. And society, uh, yeah. Uh, and, but it's in kind of direct opposition to um, what was referred to as the Atlanta Compromise, which was kind of developed by Booker T, a position taken by Booker T. Washington, who um, uh, uh, around a similar time and slightly before Du Bois was, was sort of probably the most prominent black uh, American kind of political uh, figure, um, which his, Washington's position essentially, as I again, as I understand it, was that education black people should focus on trades and um, the kinds of um, uh, professions that they were likely to be able to get access to and kind of mm. build up from there and, and ensure that they can be an active member of society in that way. And Du Bois thinks essentially the opposite, um, mm. that you need you need uh, to develop those elite positions and the, the kind of the intellectual philosophical uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, development at, at that end and that has to be linked up through the whole kind of society um yeah and, and to me that seems to just speak precisely to these those notions around decolonizing the curriculum of ensuring that there is that kind of representation uh, and, and access for mm. for everyone mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And I think part of it as well was about, um, it's a kind of like negotiating away your power, isn't it? At a time when, um, you know, in the direct period after emancipation, um, 
black people didn't have power in that context. Um, and so by conceding that, okay, we should accept um, basic education and kind of a fair legal process in exchange for giving up our fight for civil rights, political power, higher standards of education. Um, it, it kind of, it, it, and, and Du Bois argued this, that it, it was confining people to um, a second class citizenship, didn't they? If you were to, if you do, if you were to pursue this agenda, um, and I think this is where he really advocates um, for the civil rights struggle as well in response to this compromise, doesn't he? He really kind of advocates that it's important for all people who are civically engaged in order to kind of push against this and, and push for political and social power um, in that way through the civil rights um, agenda. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and to have that, you need you need leaders, I suppose, was, was his position, yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of political, social and kind of intellectual leaders. And of course, he, you know, he absolutely was one of those people. Um, and it's um, it's still I think that, you know, that, that that's still kind of an issue. And it's uh, in, in a kind of a slightly more kind of general sense. His writings on, on that concept of the Talented Tenth is essentially a kind of a um, a defense of higher education mm. in general uh, yeah. as a valuable uh, you know as a thing that's of value in itself um, mm. and he talks about that what what education should be of all kinds including that the more kind of trade-based is about developing or he says developing men it's, it means developing people yeah. uh, humans um rather than developing a carpenter or a philosopher or you know anything else so mm. it's it's about developing people, and that should also always be the the primary target, rather than instilling certain skills in a particular individual. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's the reason, or one of the reasons, why we need that connection all the way, you know, uh, through you know through uh, all kinds of different ed- types of education. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, it, it would otherwise be actually. Um, just in further enabling that kind of that that segregation really that division between um uh, between races because there'll never be that kind of that, that that kind of development or direction um mm. but i think another part of it which i find interesting is it's related to the fact that uh, this notion of the talented tenth is that he is seeing black people as almost as a class mm. as a group and um, and he's not um, advocating for segregation, but uh, there is a certain kind of separation. He's, he's, he's not interested in this kind of general, uh, more generalised kind of um, total integration. He's, he thinks black people have to be seen as um, a distinct group with distinct interests. Um, and again, that's, that kind of relates back to the notion of double consciousness. There will always be, um, uh, he, he thinks, or for the foreseeable future black people will be uh, in America will be black Americans African Americans um, and there's no kind of getting away from that we can't pretend that's not there mm-hmm. um, and we can't rely on sort of white leaders to kind of fight for them I think mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's again that's something that's still very relevant uh, today yeah absolutely yeah 
And I think it does come up in a lot of the work around uh, race in education at the minute and decolonising the curriculum again, doesn't it? Again, about um, having specific black studies courses and whether that is kind of something that we should be looking at or whether we should be having. I mean, um, there's a great group of, of, of uh, kind of young activist scholars at the minute who have fundraised um, online to set up the free black university in acknowledgement of the fact that uh, young black people don't do as well um, at university despite coming in with the same entry grades etc they experience racism within universities when they're there so this is there is kind of again um, a kind of momentum around this idea isn't there that actually black people need to be um, kind of working for themselves to build up their their own resources in order to uh, achieve higher education that can't be done through the white kind of the white man's university again uh, so yes I think there are so many sadly actually very sadly so many contemporary continuities with what uh, Du Bois argues and the position that we're in at the moment. Yeah absolutely and uh, he um, I mean he talks about this in some of his particularly some of his later work where it becomes, as I mentioned before, more kind of Marxist influenced and more um, more aligned with socialism um, and socialist kind of principles. And he, he does start to talk, he talks about how, um, uh, starts to talk more kind of globally and about how kind of uh, global kind of capitalism really, as we would talk about it today, um, is, is enabled by the exploitation of um, uh, of black workers really around the world and that becomes easier to kind of exploit uh, than, than, than in potentially in countries like America or, or, or in Europe uh, but it is those countries that are doing it. It lays you know heavily the kind of the responsibility in those kinds of rich rich western countries and um, he, you know he talks a lot a lot about that um, and again that's something which is very relevant today something we see uh, around the world and it seems that it's it, it seems easy for um, us to kind of to not pay too much attention to that um, or to not get too kind of motivated by it, uh, mm. and which, of course, is it, it is is horrifying. Um, but I wonder where where you think we are today. You know, so he's as I said, his activism went right up to the end of his life into the 1960s. He was he was crucial in that civil rights movement, which of course was very kind of. Um, uh, you know, really, really um, making big strides in, in the 1960s. Um, uh, but I think we kind of started out saying that, that you know, the colour line, the problem of the colour line, as he said, it, it, it was the problem of the 20th century, but we're 20 years into the 21st century now, um, and it, it's kind of still there. Um, and where do you think we are at with that kind of uh, call line in, in terms of, you know, reflecting on his kind of work uh, and in relation to yours? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my work um, is more around problems within policing and criminal justice processes, but policing in particular. Um, and I think, again, with the Black Lives Matter movement, that's something that really demands our attention. But it's not a new problem. It's a problem that's been kind of significant since kind of the end of um slavery really because a lot of those methods of policing were developed in order to manage uh, the context of the colonies and slaves etc so I think again the, the continuities are there in terms of what we're seeing um, around the way that black people in the UK context and I think the US context 
text is different in some ways. Um, I mean, the problem is the same, but I think we've got slightly different histories of, of, of policing, etc. Um, so I think in the UK context, again, it's this problem that emerges um, quite significantly or more significantly in the post-war period after you have um, mass migration from the Caribbean islands um, to kind of rebuild the country after the war. And then what you have is a group of people who are seen as um, the other on the other side of the colour line. You know, these are these people are the problem and the need policing as the only problem. And that's something um, that has um, continued uh, uh, in the in the contemporary times and this is what we're seeing in these experiences that are being shared of people's experiences of the police right now um, so yeah I think it's really important and, and going back to the methods that you were talking about there um, to think about how how we engage with communities talk to them about their experiences and challenges um, and not just talk to them but protest with them as well challenge the institutions to make sure that the problem of the kind of 21st century as I think it very much is um, uh, doesn't continue to be the colour line as it was in the uh, 20th century. Yeah, I'd, yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and I think um, the kind of work that you're doing and other people are doing is, is kind of really, uh, really important in that. And um, yeah, we, we, we can kind of only hope, uh, hope for that. I think Lisa, can I just shut my window? I think there's a taxi beeping for somebody outside. Yeah, so, um, uh, Lisa also lives near a school, I think, and so uh, I rather um, stupidly uh, arranged this around the time of uh, uh, schools get out uh, as well. So uh, but, Sorry uh, about yeah. that. No, 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 that's fine. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. We're, we're, we're just about done anyway. So, but um, yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And um, I just wanted to say um, thanks for talking to me, Lisa. It's been It's been great to kind of hear your your thoughts on this and um i'll put some uh, links in in the um uh, in the podcast description to um to some of uh, uh the things we've talked about and some of du Bois's work one of the great things uh, about um talking about people that were writing quite a long time ago is you can usually get a lot of their texts quite easily and freely on uh, online on, on things like project gutenberg uh, which are really good sources of kind of uh, of ebooks that are out of copyright uh, such as uh, most of most of his work is i think i'll put some links up to those um, but yes, uh, thanks for talking to me, and um, uh, I'll um, I'll speak to you again soon. Yeah, thanks very much. Bye. Bye. Hi again. So I hope you uh, enjoyed that uh, chat between me and Lisa. And as usual, it would be great to get some feedback, ideas, comments, questions about this episode. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at Chris H Till and get to my blog at thisisnotasociology.blog and there's more info about the episode with links um, to some of the the, the texts we've talked about uh, which are also in the podcast description. Uh, there's links to all, also to all the um, the different platforms that the, that the podcast is on so if you can um, uh, get your way there and, to, and subscribe if, if you want to keep uh, getting these episodes coming in uh, direct to your devices. Um, so Next week, I'll be talking about Harriet Martineau, who is one of the earliest sociologists and uh, also one of the earliest um, female um, and British sociologists and a, and a really, really interesting um, and insightful figure, I think. This episode was produced and presented by me. Uh, the theme song is Verklik Viktig by Checky Brown. 
and the incidental music is Disco Stomp by Jonas78, both used on a Creative Commons license, and hopefully I'll see you next time. <laughs>